0: Good morning, morning. Romans 8 verses 18 through 25 will be our sermon text for this morning. It's very important for you to turn there. So if you would, Romans 8 verses 18 through 25. I just want to say quickly that uh, it is an honor That's not overstatement. It is an honor to get to stand before you and deliver the word this morning, um, especially when I consider just the quality of just excellent saints that fill up this room week in and week out. It's a great privilege. So I could go on, but we'll just keep it short. So let's get to our sermon text. For I consider... And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Father, we come before you again this morning, Lord, just asking, asking for your help. Asking for you, Lord, to fill us up with your Holy Spirit that we may embrace the truth of the Scriptures, Lord, as, as not just being a truth, but as being the truth and the truth for us, for our souls, Lord God. I pray that we would re- our souls would resonate with the truth that we experience through your word this morning, Lord God. I need your help. And so fill me up with your spirit, Lord God, to proclaim the word faithfully, Lord. And I pray that you would ignite our hearts to respond in faith to the truths that we hear this morning. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I... Uh, Have been known to be a little bit emotional while preaching and a little bit energetic. So um, I I didn't uh, grow up Baptist either. I didn't grow up anything. So I kind of developed later on in life into whatever it is that I've become. So we're just going to run with it. We're going to run with it. We're going to talk this morning about fixing our hope fixing our hope, we're we're going to sort of explore hope, we can't can't build an exhaustive theology of hope uh, in one sermon, so we're we're going to fly over a bit at 30,000 feet and we're going to examine the idea, the concept of biblical hope by way of this passage of scripture. And so what we're seeking to do this morning is ask and answer essentially one question and it is, what is Christian hope? Pretty simple. That's what we're going for this morning. We're going we're to do it by looking in three places. We're going to look around, we're going to look back, and then we're going to look ahead. Look around to establish the need for Christian hope. Look back to establish the basis for Christian hope. And look ahead to establish the focus of Christian hope. So as we begin to look around, um, we're going to run a little bit of a diagnostic on our collective and individual hope this morning. We're going to do it by way of a little illustration. There's this substance known as Prussian blue. Anybody ever heard of Prussian blue? Fascinating substance. Okay, It was developed in the early 1700s as a pigment for paint. It's just a blue, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a blue pigment that would be mixed in to um, paint, and actually the earliest known painting to have ever used this particular pigment Uh, was called the Entombment of Christ in 1709, which I thought was interesting for our purposes this morning. So when you think of Prussian blue on that level, you probably think one main thing, probably the same thing that I thought. Oh, that's nice, right? It's a pretty thing. It makes other things look a little bit nicer, adds a little bit of color to the world of the painting, but that's about as far as it goes, unless you're an artist, in which case maybe you feel some kind of way about Prussian blue. But you see, Prussian blue is more commonly known for a different usage in the modern day. Prussian blue is known as an antidote for certain types of radiation poisoning, specifically heavy metal poisoning. Specifically, probably the most well-known would be thallium poisoning. Thallium used to be referred to as the poisoner's poison because it was completely undetectable. Uh, odorless, tasteless, all that stuff, and so, I, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but my brief amount of research that I was able to do, it seems like thallium would just be slipped into something, it would be ingested, and it's almost like it just kind of gets stuck, kind of embeds itself in your system, and then it just it just causes uh, decay. It just sort of poisons you from the inside out. And 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 Prussian blue. Uh, will be ingested by the one who is experiencing this poisoning. And Prussian blue binds to the thallium, or the thallium binds to the Prussian blue, however it works. And then it is expelled out of the body, and the person's life is saved. Now, when you think of it on that level, when you think about being in a desperate situation where something is literally sucking the life out of you, you don't know what the solution is. When, when you think of being in that hospital room and something is happening to your body, Death is knocking on the door. And then then the doctor walks in and you hear them say the words, Prussian blue. It hits a little bit differently, doesn't it? Suddenly, Prussian blue is not merely some pigment that adds a little color to the world somewhere, but rather it is an antidote that allows you to combat a poisonous decay that will overrun your existence on this earth, leaving you as a shell of the person that you once were or should be, ultimately leading to your demise. Now, Prussian blue, in this context, is an antidote and not merely an accessory. It is essential, not ancillary and so this speaks to our main question this morning what is christian hope think about the common usage of the word man i hope that the cowboys can just get it together for the rest of the season make a deep run in the playoffs it's been 25 years come on but if you've been watching the last few weeks you just might not be so sure right? It's something that might happen. It would add a little bit of color to your life if it did. Not usually something that's essential, no real expectation of it coming to pass, right? I just desire it to happen. But man, if that is all that the Romans 8 version of hope is, then brothers and sisters, that's just not good enough, (laughs) This sort of vague, squishy, Bible-based positivity about the future, that is tantamount to a denial of the realities that normal people face as they walk through life. And if that is the way that we conceive of hope, then we, we need to fix it. We need to fix our hope. so that we can include kind of everybody on kind of all sides of the spectrum here. Some of us, maybe we don't find ourselves quite in that situation regarding hope this morning, but maybe we have a profound sense of the idea of hope, a deep sense of the idea of hope, but we're just focusing it on all the wrong things. And so what what's happened is we've taken certain pieces of our lives, placed them in the antidote category when they really belong in the accessory category. In essence, we've been... Trying to draw water for our souls, have a broken sister, not realizing that we are dying of thirst. So we're going to see this morning that properly placed Christian hope, it's not just it's not just a pigment that adds a little bit of color to your life. It's much more like that antidote that combats a deadly, poisonous decay that can overrun your existence on this earth, leaving you as a shell of the person you once were or should be. Friends, Christian hope is an antidote, not an accessory to your already magnificent life. We cannot replace what is essential with something ancillary. So if we're going to properly make that transition, and that's what I'm hoping we can do this morning, If we're going to properly make that transition from the shallow worldly usage of the word hope to a robust biblical Romans 8 definition of hope, then we need the Bible to answer some questions for us. So what is Christian hope? What is Christian hope? We're going to look around, we're going to look back, and we're going to look ahead. Let's let's keep on looking around, but uh, let's dial in a little bit more establishing the need for a Christian hope. We're just going to walk through the text. Is that cool? Are you all all right with that? We're just going to walk through the text a little bit at a time and see what it is that the Lord has to say to us. Verses 20 through 23. I'm going to constantly be referring back, so you might want to keep your finger in Romans 8 there. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the uh, pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirits, we, even we, groan inwardly. So why do we need Christian hope? Because life is hard, and suffering, and futility, and groaning exist, if you remember back to Genesis 3, if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's okay, I'm going to help you out, if you remember back to Genesis 3, God creates everything, he's created people, right, and, and he's just seeking out of his abundance, a people for his own possession. That's what he's been after. And and, and instead of submitting to God with a glad submission, the people choose to run away. We'll talk more about that in a bit. And so sin is injected into the system and the thing just breaks. And so since that point, the creation has been subjected to this futility and, and, and things have been have been just sort of grinding against each other in a, in a crazy, negative, sort of broken machine kind of way. So we need to define a couple of words there. Futility is one of them. That's not really a word that we throw around a lot. I, I've been through, I went through like a dozen synonyms for the word futility, and, and a couple of them that I think will be help, helpful for us. Number one, Pointlessness. Okay. Uh, you could say meaninglessness. I don't have that one written down, but, but, but that will be helpful for us. And then the third one, and, and I thought this one was really helpful in the context of this verse frustration. Frustration. And so what's being said is that creation itself was subjected to this frustration. And we, being, being bound up in this, we experience the same kind of thing, right? Like if you have kids and have ever tried to put them to bed at night, then you understand the futility of life. If you've ever had a job and you had demands on you, you had a timeline, you had plans for the way that things were going to go, you know. You, you've experienced the futility. And of course, those are, those are small. Those are small and, and somewhat silly examples but but you get it right and so creation was subjected it seems to the perpetual question uh, excuse me perpetual need to ask the question what is the point of all of this what 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 is the point of this frustration that we experience groaning is another important word here now now groan just it just means that okay. We talk about going to the original language. Well, that's what it means in the original language, groan or sigh. But the reason for the groaning or the sighing is what is significant. It's as the result of deep concern or stress. Now, when you think of groaning, culturally speaking, maybe you, maybe you equate that with uh, complaining, which would, which would make perfect sense given our context. But that's just not quite what we're talking about here. We're talking about this type of groaning. We're talking about coming face to face with the reality of the futility and suffering in the world and acknowledging that things just aren't the way that they're supposed to be. This is not the way things were intended to be. And yet here we are. And so groanful, or excuse me, groaning is, a, is not necessarily sinful. It is a truthful acknowledgement of that fact. Now, I had several examples of groaning that I wanted to share from the scriptures this morning, but I simply do not have the time to do it. So I'm going to give you one, and it's a great example. The only problem with it is that the word uh, groan and the word futility do not show up in it at all. Okay, so cards on the table, I'm cheating a little bit. But the idea is definitely there, and I think that you will agree when we, uh, when we look at it together. So I'm going to give you one biblical example of groaning when suffering at the hands of fallen nature and the experience of futility. Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Many of us are familiar with that, uh, with that story. If you're not, that's okay. I'm going to tell you what you need to know uh, this morning for our purposes today. But I would encourage you to go back and read their story uh, later today or this week. It will be helpful to you. So if you're familiar with the story, you know that Abraham and Sarah, they're around 100 years old, and they've got, to this point, they've got no kids, and they've got no prospects. There's kind of a kid, but it's kind of a weird situation. Okay? It's on the shady side. So... I've, got, I've, I've gotten this, this idea from someone else, this concept, but it's been very helpful for me. It's important when we consider, uh, especially these Old Testament narratives, it's important to consider them within their emotional context. Because these were real people. These things really happened, and the Lord really spoke into their situations, right? And, and, and let me just keep on top of that. Before I make my point, the, the fact that is believed that culturally speaking, in, in, in ancient times, ancient peoples uh, who were not able to bear children would have been believed to have been cursed by whatever God there was, right? They, everybody had their own God. There were tons of gods. And so whatever God it was, you must have done something bad probably, and, and therefore you've been, you've been cursed with the inability to conceive. This is not a hyper-individualized culture, right? Like, this is a very, very much family, community-oriented type of culture, and so that would have a much greater impact on your life. People speculating as to what it is that you may have done. So that's a little bit of the historical context. Let's consider the emotional context a little more deeply. Many of us have been impacted by, by infertility, whether it's personally or someone who is very dear to us or what, whatever the case may be. Some of you in this very room, you've experienced it, and oh, how you groaned before the Lord in your affliction. I just don't think that Abraham and Sarah's experience was much different, except for it stretched on for about 100 years for them. if you If you are familiar with this story, you remember that God breaks in right and God tells them that they're going to conceive that they're going to have a child when they're old, very old, well advanced in years. That's what the scripture says. and if you remember Sarah laughs um yeah. It's a little, you know, in one sense it would be humorous. But, but it seems that there's something a little bit more going on there. Okay, the Jesus Storybook Bible, have you ever heard of it? It's one of my favorite versions of the Bible. It's a kid, it's a kid one. Micah and me, we've read through it uh, several times together. It puts, it puts Sarah's story this way. It says, Now, when Sarah heard God's promise, she laughed to herself. But it wasn't a happy laugh. It had tears in it. It's this type of sad, cynical laugh that is harboring a yeah right in it. And just remember for context, the yeah right is towards God who has told them they're going to have a child. Maybe you're familiar with that type of laugh because I would be willing to bet that you do it too. I know I have. Remember we said groaning is not necessarily sinful, though it can be. It's generally a truthful acknowledgement that the world is not quite what it should be. And so our groaning must be done in hope. Do you remember the rest of Abraham's story? Romans 4, Paul delivers us some commentary on the way that this thing sort of plays out, right? Romans 4:20 says Paul writes, no unbelief made him, Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised according to everything that Abraham had ever known up until this point. So it would seem, based upon the biblical narrative, is that there is no reason that we naturally are going to have children, It's just not going to happen. And yet God breaks in and he says, you know what? Not only are you going to have a child, you're going to be the father of many nations. Your offspring, man, they're going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. You're going to bless the world through your offspring. Just sidebar, husbands and wives, sometimes you need to carry each other. Sometimes you need to believe for one another as you experience difficulties. And so all of this stuff sort of swirling around Abraham's head. He's trying to walk through life. He's messing up. He's, he, he's just sort of bumbling along. But what did Abraham do when he was confronted with the truth of the futility of life? What did he reach for? Abraham reached for one thing, God's promise. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God 418 says in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations what does that mean that seems like a silly statement it essentially means that he did not hope as the world hopes which is to say when he heard the promise of God regarding this particular situation he didn't just think that something might happen he didn't just think you know It would add a little bit of color to our lives if we were able to have a child. But no real expectation of it coming to pass. He just desired it to happen. Abraham hoped according to what God said, not what his eyes saw. We see this story on repeat throughout the scriptures. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, right? People basing their hope for the future on the promises that God spoke to them in the past. And so we are taught that this is just what God's people do. God's people do not hope as the world hopes. That is according to what we see. We are to hope according to what God has said. Even though we see futility and groaning As we look around, right? We look back at the faithfulness of God to deliver his people and act according to the promises that he made to them. We see that and we say God must make good on his word. So Christian hope is not, it can't be vague, squishy, loosely Bible-based positivity about the future. No, it is built on a specific, firm, Bible-backed foundation of God making good on his word. So what is Christian hope? One theologian put it this way, to just put a really fine point on it. He's using the phrase biblical hope. He says biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. And I would add, based on the very words and character of God himself. Brothers and sisters, if ours is anything less than that, then we need to fix our hope. So let's begin to look back to to, to apply this concept more specifically. Because when you start talking about the promises of God, believing in the promises of God, when you start talking that way in generalities, sometimes things get weird. And we're not looking to get weird in that way this morning. So so we're going to look back To establish the basis for Christian hope. What can we base our hope on? Or to say it a different way, what promise from God is the primary basis for Christian hope? Romans 8.23 begins to, to key us in to the truth. Paul says... And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. We, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That seems like a strange phrase. Basically what that means, this is from a Romans commentary that I have. The indwelling of the Spirit here and now is the first installment or the initial down payment of the eternal heritage of glory that awaits believers. If we were able to read through all of Romans 8 up to this point, you would see this, right? You would see one verse in particular where Paul has written, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So what primary promise from God is the basis for Christian hope? Here's the primary promise, y'all it's the gospel. We don't don't have to appeal to, to some obscure text from the Old Testament. We've got it sitting right in front of us, plain black and white. It's the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Do you believe that that's true? Then is injected into the system as God is pursuing a people for his own possession and the people start running. And you know what God does? He pursues. And you know what the people do? They keep running. And you know what God does? He keeps pursuing. And and he he says, I've got to have these people for myself. Not because he needs us, y'all. Because he loves us. And, and, And so... So he had this plan decided in his mind. He said, I know what has to happen. I know that there is a requirement for them to come near to me because of sin. Right? Because God's just. He can't sweep wrongdoing under the rug. He would not be be good. He would not be just if he did that. And he said, there's a price that must be paid to get these people back. And the only person who can pay this high of a price is God. And so he said, I'm going to send my son, right? If I love him, then I'm going to get him myself. And so he sends his son. But he has, he, he has to send him in the complete likeness of sinful flesh. That doesn't mean that we're, we're not just talking about a body, right? God didn't come down in a meat suit. He had a human soul, a human Mind, tempted in every way as we are, and yet somehow without sin. Man, I've sinned in some ways. I've thought about sin in in some way worse ways. And and, and Christ tempted in all the same ways, but he did not sin. And, And... And and he goes and lays his life down, perfect, without spot or blemish or any such thing, lays his life down, nailed to the cross, absorbs the wrath of God, due as penalty for the sin of people. Goes into the tomb, resurrected on the third day, ascends, sits down. Right, when he's on the cross, you remember what he said? He didn't say, your turn. He said, it is finished, y'all. And then when he, when he ascends after a span of time, he sits down at the right hand of the Father, sits down further establishing his point that it is finished. And from there, he advocates on the behalf of his people, the Father. Earlier in Romans 8, he says, this is the way he explains it, God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, which is to say, so that we can stand before God. Jesus comes. God makes a way because he loves us, y'all. And so... The gospel is the primary basis for Christian hope. Now, I'm going to give you two other things that you can base your hope on that are consequences of the gospel. Romans 8, 28 and 29 say this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, brothers. now, here's what just happened. Don't use this as a consolation prize for people who are suffering. Do you hear me? Because I have done that for such a long time. Yeah, I mean, I know that this is bad, but you know, God's working all things together for good. That does not do justice to, to, to what's going on here. We need to weaponize this verse, right? We need to use it like a giant club to beat back the hopelessness that people are experiencing in their lives because what has just been testified to by the scriptures is that no matter what happens in your life, the worst day of your life, the best day of your your life, whatever it is, God is going to take all of these things and somehow in the divine mystery, I don't understand how it works, but I know that it's true because I've seen it. God is going to take all of these things, and he's going to work them together for your highest and most ultimate good in him. Not necessarily what you thought. And and then, then, he goes on. From verse 29, verse 29 tells us that you, as a Christian, you have a predestiny in Christ. Okay? Sometimes we hear some, some stuff about destiny and it starts to make us feel a little bit weird, a little bit uncomfortable, as far as like weirdness. But what we just heard here is that if you're in Christ, your destiny has already been decided. And here's what it is. To be conformed to the image of the Son. Can you believe that? That's not all he says. He goes even further than that. He, he says, you're going to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that you might be the firstborn among many brothers. Meaning that this whole thing is not intended to terminate on you. Do you get that? No way, man. This thing rolls straight through you like a steamroll, and it rolls on. So that you might just be the firstborn among many brothers. That is amazing. And so, just to kind of restate it all together. The worst thing that you've experienced in your life ever. Maybe it was this year. Y'all, this has been a hard year for some. The worst thing that you've ever experienced in your life. These verses essentially draw a line between that thing and the glory of God as it abounds unto the expansion of God's kingdom influence, y'all. That there were times, there have been times in my life, and I know maybe you're in it right now. I know what it's like, where you're, you're just like you're almost down in this hole, and you just don't know that you're coming out. Can we be real? Okay. And this, this precious bit of Scripture is telling us that God is taking even that, it's not even, especially that, and He is forming you all the more into the image of His precious, beloved, only begotten Son for the sake of not just yourself, yes, you, but for the sake of the good of others. And I would even say, well, let let me give it to you concisely like this. I got it written down. Essentially, the basis for our hope is God saving us like he said that he would through Christ's birth, life, death, burial, Resurrection, and then promising that he's working everything together for our good in order to conform us to the image of Christ for the sake of the furthering of, I would say, the Great Commission. That's what it sounds like. Don't insult God by basing your hope for the future on something smaller than that. So what is Christian hope? We've been looking around, looking back, and now we need to look ahead. We're going to look ahead to establish the focus of Christian hope. Again, cards on the table. Jake did some of the heavy lifting on this last week, okay? And uh, I'm a little short on time, so I'm not going to go way into this. What I will say is that you don't hope backwards. You base your hope on something that has happened. But hope is an expectation of future good by definition, right? So we hope ahead, something that is coming. From our, from our text, verses 23 and 24, part of 24, it says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. What does that mean? I thought we were already adopted, right? I, I mean, I know that my body has not been redeemed because I live in it every day. From that same Romans commentary, it says this: this section of this verse, right? It implies that the salvation is already ours if you are in Christ, right? But it indicates that our full enjoyment of it lies in the future. And so, if you've not heard this phrase, this might be helpful for you. We're kind of living in this already, not yet of salvation. That's the state we're in. That's kind of the state that the kingdom of God is in. We're living in the already, not yet. And so I'm just going to cheat, and I'm going to let another text kind of interpret this for us. 1 Corinthians 4, 13 and 18 says this. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak, knowing, now this is, this is important, listen to this, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. That is the most concise way to sum up the future focus of Christian hope. And, and he he goes on to sort of unpack some of the implications of that. He says, it's all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, so Because these things are true, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing. He's talking about life. Do you understand that? This light, just this light, momentary affliction. It's either life or it's whatever the suffering that we're in at this time. It doesn't feel light, momentary. But in comparison... This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're they're temporary, passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And so the focus, the focus of our hope is, is not here. It is in eternity. It's unseen, kept in heaven. And so I'll, I'll begin to end, okay, with, with a few encouragements, without expounding on that much because I don't have the time to. Fix your hope, dear saints, on the eternal realities that are awaiting us in Glory, right? The immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus in the ages to come. Those are going to unfold, but not yet. Not not fully. But do not fix your eyes on your outer self, which is wasting away. Do not fix your eyes on this light and momentary affliction, though it seems like so much more than that. Fix your hope. Not on the things that are seen, for they are passing away, but on that which is unseen seen. Lift your eyes, dear saints. Lift them toward heaven from which our Savior will be coming to set us free eternally from this bondage to decay. Focus. Focus through the trials, temptations, tribulations of this life. Focus on this. That one way or another, we win and we'll be with Him forever and he is our prize and the antidote to our hopelessness to the futility to to the feeling of meaninglessness though nothing in this life is truly meaningless we believe it because god said it and he's already done what he said in the past now i want to i want to finish finish uh with the worst practical application that you've ever heard okay I'm historically bad at application, but we're going we're gonna to try In light of all this, there is a truth that we must embrace to move forward. Practically, what all of this means is that you have nothing to lose. If you're in Christ, you have nothing to lose to lose in the path of obedience. You have everything to gain. I'm going to appeal to one more scripture as I close out here. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. And and I honestly think that this is really just an explanation of what regular Christianity is. I don't think this is superstar Christianity. I think this is... I think this is what it is. Paul again. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. Nothing compares to this. There is nothing worth holding on to if it is separating you from this. He goes on, man, he, he, say, he uses some strong words here. He says, man, for his sake, I've, I've suffered the loss of all things. And you know what? I count them as rubbish. All this other stuff that's keeping me from the pursuit of Christ, garbage. Just get rid of it. Set it out on the curb on Monday morning and it'll be gone. I count it as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a right standing before God, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that is to say that comes from working, from doing good works, from doing the right thing. But only that which comes through faith in Christ, faith in the finished, final, perfect word and work of Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by, listen to this, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Is that your posture? Now I know we've got to talk about like perseverance of the saints and security of salvation and all that stuff, and the Spirit's given to us as a seal and a guarantee, and, and I get that. I'm not taking anything theologically away from all theological qualifications that need to be made, make them. But is that your posture? That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I I implore you this morning, church, to adopt this as your new life mantra, both collectively and individually. I, I want you from your heart to say this believing, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. If you will embrace that as your life mantra, if you will chase hard after that with everything that you have, forsaking anything else that that is holding you back from the pursuit of that thing, then your life will be hard, but it will be excellent, and you will not regret it. But if you choose to neglect this, you will live a half-hearted existence on this earth. And you will waste your life. You will waste your life as you pursue anything less than this. Than giving it all up for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And if you're wondering, okay, because here's, here's the question people have. Is it worth it? I say, yeah. It is. And as you're kind of trying to work through that, what does it look like? If you really are wondering, is it possible to live this way? Is it worth it to live this way? Simply look around, look back, look ahead, and hope in God, you guys. He is worth it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power and presence of your Holy Spirit, Lord God. Thank you for the word, Lord. I am insufficient for these things. And yet you are sufficient enough, Lord God, to make much of yourself in this group of people. Lord God, I'm praying for the good of Indian Creek Baptist Church, that, Father, these people will love you more than anything, will pursue you, neglecting anything else, Lord God, will pursue you with their whole hearts from now on into eternity, because you are worth it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much.